Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready to be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. Perfect for on the go or as a healthy pick-me-up, Irish kombucha brand Synergy includes all the amazing benefits of kombucha and I'm delighted to team up with them for the coming weeks. Craft brewed in Donegal using 100% natural ingredients, Synergy is packed full of live cultures and naturally occurring enzymes which helps to detox the body, supports gut health and aids digestion. And they've just launched their first canned range of sparkling drinks. Naturally vegan, low in calories and gluten-free, you can pick up one of their latest cans at supermarkets nationwide. And for more on the brand, simply go to synergykombucha.ie. This week, my guest is redemptorist priest and religious writer, Tony Flannery. The misogyny, the anti-woman thing and the anti-sex were very much... And they weren't parts of the Gospels. I know a lot of Jesus' relationship with women has been uh, pushed out of the Gospels uh, because, again, the Gospels as we have now were only put together in the... They were only finalised in the third century and they came from a whole range of scraps and bits of writing here and there uh, that were preserved. And it was the people in the third century that decided what we put in and what we leave out. And there are definite indications, for instance, that Mary Magdalene had a very significant part to play in the life of Jesus, and that that was pushed out in the official version that has come down to us. Tony has gained a reputation for being a controversial figure within the Catholic Church. But when you examine what he talks about, he's simply speaking the truth. In this conversation, we hear how he ended up becoming a priest. 
Ireland in the 50s and 60s and the significance of the church at the time, the changes brought about by Vatican II and the impact it had. He also shares his views on Pope John Paul, Benedict and the current pontiff. And he also talks about some of the fundamental teachings of the Catholic Church that he simply can't accept. In 2012, he was summoned to the Vatican and told he'd be allowed to return to ministry only if he agreed to sign a statement stating, amongst other things, that women could never be ordained priests and that he would adhere to church orthodoxy in matters like contraception and homosexuality. He went to Rome with his brother Frank, former Finnegoel strategist, and unsurprisingly, he never signed the documents. Tony is a man of real character and it was an absolute pleasure for me to talk to him. Here is our conversation. Good morning, Tony, and you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sheila. Good to be here. So I'd love to start the conversation by asking you about your younger years, your childhood in Galway. What was it like? Oh, I was born, Sheila, in 1947. That goes back a good bit. I'm 74 years of age now. Uh, grew up in a small farm in a place called the Timon yeah. in Hurling, Hurling Circles. It would be better known as Kalima Daly. And uh, I was the youngest of a family of five, the first of whom died very young before I was born. So there were four of us and I was the youngest. And my father, along with doing the little bit of farming, also worked in the Bordnamona bog in a time in which was just beside us. And we, my two brothers and myself, uh, spent our summers as young lads uh, footing tops in the bog and making a bit of money for our education and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. in a way, it was an advantage at the time to be close to some place where young people could find a bit of summer occupation. My sister Geraldine didn't tend to go to the bog. It was it was quiet. We were all three of us were mad into hurling, and of course there was plenty of outing, out uh, plenty of opportunity for that. Mm. So it was that type of a child, so typical of the time. Yeah. So when did you first? I don't know if the term is feeling a pull towards the priesthood, or <laughs> <laughs> when did that? You're laughing. Is that not <laughs> a thing? I belong to a family that would sound really crazy now. Go on. But back in the 1950s, it wasn't that unusual. Mm. All four of us joined religious life. It was before the time of the, the free education and the, the buses. And the nearest second level school was Atonrai, which would have been about six or seven mile cycle. Yeah. And um, we were also just a few miles away from the Redemptus Monastery, a place called Esker. Mm. And we used to go there on our bikes on a Saturday evening to the Novena. My mother was quite religious. And uh, so we got to know the Redemptus well. And when Peter, the eldest of us, got to 12 and had finished in primary school, uh, she was chatting with one of the priests about the possibilities of getting him for secondary education. She was ambitious for us. She was determined that we would get a good education mm. uh, and that we wouldn't end up 
uh, like our father working in the bog, or alternatively immigrating, which most of our generation did around uh, the place where we grew up. Yeah. And the priest in the monastery suggested that the Redemptress had a little boarding school down in Limerick, and why don't you send him there? And I'll talk to them, he said, and I'll see, can I get uh, the fees reduced a bit so that you'll be able to manage? Okay. So Peter went to the Redemptress in Limerick, followed a year later by Frank, the second of us, and then later, a couple of years later, by myself. Uh, the only thing about it, Sheila, is it wasn't just a simple secondary school. It was a junior seminary or a junior, as it used to be called at the time. Mm. It was training ground for Redemptress priests. Now, the whole notion of a young lad of 12 uh, going into a situation which was training him to be a priest yeah. is is preposterous now. Mm. But it was common then. Yeah. Now, it was a civilised school in a lot of ways uh, compared to the stories I used to hear of the diocesan seminaries, say, like Garbelli or Jarlots or those. Mm. We had a very civilised time. There was practically no corporal punishment. It was a relatively small school, about 100 borders, and it uh, wasn't bad uh, uh, in a lot of ways. Looking back on it, what I would uh, feel about it uh, was that we were already being, to some degree, brainwashed and prepared for life as religious priests. And we were just way too young to have that imposed on us. Peter then went on to, when he'd finished his second level and done his leaving set, he went on to the Redemptress Novitiate to join the Redemptress, followed again a year later by Frank, mm -hmm. and followed a couple of years later by me. So, And in the meantime, before I joined the Redemptress, my sister, who boarded in St. Rayfield's in Loch Grey and did a living set there, she too, unbelievably, went off to join a convent. She went to Ballonrobe in County Mayo okay. to join the Mercy Nuns. So uh, when people ask me about did I get a call, I say, no, I just was the last in the conveyor belt. And it seemed like the obvious thing to do. And Peter, the eldest of us, uh, who actually died just last November, mm. Peter was a great storyteller. And when he went to Limerick first to the school and he'd come home at Christmas and at Easter and he would regale us with stories about the place. And it sounded like the most wonderful place in the world and I couldn't wait to go there. Mm. And then equally, when he went into the seminary, he did the same. So peaceful storytelling might have been God's call to me. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but when you were speaking there, I couldn't help but think the word brainwashing was in my mind. And I, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to say that for fear of offending you. But then you used the term yourself, which was interesting. I used the term myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it was very much that. Now, by the time I did my Leaving South Future, uh, 1964, the large majority of my class did not go on to join the Redemptress. So I suppose the brainwashing wasn't quite as effective then as it had been previously because so much else was changing in the world around us. 
Mm. So uh, that was part of it. But I would imagine that more so for me, it was the family influence. And my father, who left school at the age of 12, which would have been typical enough at the time, yeah. he was from outside Athenry and they too were farmers. And dad never learned to, he could never write. Mm-hmm. He could barely sign his name. He did learn to read and he became a, a, a voracious reader. Uh, but um, they valued education enormously, as a lot of parents did at the time. Yes. And this was our opportunity for education. And then back again in the 1950s, being a priest gave you social status, mm-hmm. importance, significance. Like I can remember when Peter was ordained, it was what, 1967, the welcome he got back home and village, the bonfires and a platform was set up outside the house and uh, uh, speeches and all that sort of thing. Almost a I celebrity, mean, really. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you see, uh, uh, put that against a lot of my contemporaries in the parish I grew up in, immigration to Birmingham. Yeah. I worked in the buildings or whatever. I got a job in Bodnamona and, and full-time employment there. Like there was a lot that was attractive about it, uh, and there was a lot of status involved in it. And Dad loved the fact that we were doing something that made us stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean that in any nasty sense. No, not and at all. I, I get you. Yeah. I appreciate what they did for us, and boy, did they work hard, as again, most of their contemporaries did, and they sacrificed so much of their own and that. Uh, so what happened then was Peter was ordained, Frank left. Now, Frank would be well enough known in political circles afterwards as a yes. as an advisor to Finneguel and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank left, but he was only about a year from ordination when he left. Uh, and uh, he got married and he's now living in Dublin. Uh, my sister stayed in the convent for about, I suppose, 25 years or so. Okay. She left it in her early to mid-40s, and she took up Chinese medicine and became an acupuncturist. Wonderful. And yeah. she's still living in Tume. She doesn't do much anymore. She's, she's, she's a few years older than me. Mm-hmm. But the second half of Geraldine's life was dramatically different to the first half, yes. in that not only... Did she practice Chinese medicine, but she also imbibed a lot of the philosophy and the thinking behind it, uh, which would have been very different mm-hmm. to the religion that she grew up with. Yes, absolutely. Something that's coming to mind when I'm just wondering about the person listening and, and myself, to be honest, I don't know much about the Redemptorist order. Can you? Is it? Oh. Would it be okay to explain what it is? Is it easy? To I would, of course. Explain? Uh, yeah. It, it, it founded in Italy in the 18th century by a man called Alphonsus Liguri, and the main focus of the Redemptus was to preach the gospel to the poor. Mm-hmm. That was the philosophy. Um, he, uh, Alphonsus, was a native of Naples, and 
became very uh, disillusioned at the time with the clergy who liked the good life in Naples and had no interest in working for or serving the poor people who lived in the country around. So he gathered a group of committed priests around him and they began to go out into the hinterland and uh, preach to the people around there. And that's how it began. And out of that, the Redemptors became known as traveling preachers, preachers of missions. And that's what would be really known for in Ireland. The Redemptors came to Ireland in the middle of the 19th century and uh, started giving parish missions around the country. And now at this stage, that apostolate has nearly died out, but it flourished for a long time. And I would have spent the bulk of my life when I was an active priest at that type of work. And that also developed into novena giving. Mm. And we became very well known from around in the 70s, 80s and on from there as preachers of very large novenas. One that you probably came across in your time, yeah. Sheila, would have been in the cathedral in Galway. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we did those in a lot, lots, and st- still do some. There, there are few enough but I'm just left now with, with any energy. Uh, most of them are very old. I was also so thinking th- of my time at school and we would often have retreats. And if memory serves, I, I think they were by a redemptorist priest. Likely enough, yeah. in my younger years as a priest, Sheila, I did loads of school retreats. It was also part of, of what we did. Yeah. So, the, so the whole focus was we didn't so much work in parishes like mm. the Assistant priests did. Yes. We we became the, the, the sort of specialists who came to a parish or a school or wherever for a short period of time, did our thing and moved on. And the idea was that it would be some sort of a revival of the faith, you know, Mm. Uh, a bit like the evangelicals in America nowadays. Yes, okay. And the other thing we were famous for, Sheila, in the early years was, uh, and it figures a good bit in Irish literature, Patrick Kavanagh has a great description of it, James Joyce has, even though he attributes it to the Jesuits, it was very much a redemptive-style sermon in... um, a portrait of an artist, Hellfire and Brimstone was what we were famous for. Okay. Um, the redemptress sermons tended to have lurid descriptions of hell and the punishments that await the damned. By the time I came along, the Vatican Council had come and the, the whole thing had changed and the style of preaching that we did in my generation would have been very different from that yeah, before we get to Vatican II, I just want to kind of go back to, so your brother Peter is ordained. How long is he a priest at this stage before you become a priest? Peter was seven years ahead of me. Okay, and what age were you when you were ordained? I was, uh, 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 <laughs> I took a good while. Uh, I was ordained in 1974, but I joined the Redemptorist in 1964. So I did a 10-year training period mm. during which I took two years of a break and was a, a teacher I taught in the school so I'm for guessing two years. Were you in your late 20s? About then? I was 27 when I was ordained. Okay. Yeah. And by then Sheila mm. 
uh, um, see, the whole thing had changed. There was a, a real sense of excitement in the church uh, after the Vatican Council. There was a whole range of new thinking, yes. new ways of doing things. We were going to have this bright new church. And I was carried along very much in the enthusiasm of that. And there were a lot of young men, uh, say around my brother Peter's age, uh, who were very involved in Redemptor's work at that stage and who were reshaping the whole way the thing was done and the whole message that was preached. So that was an exciting time. Yes. And I'd said that it was very much that that brought me back into the system and decide to be ordained. I wanted to be part of that excitement. But of course, within a few more years, John Paul came along and he certainly put a damper on the whole thing. Yeah, so for those listening who are maybe not aware of those changes, I mean, my own understanding is is pretty crude, but so please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding was before Vatican II, it, you know, the church was driven by, I suppose, fear was the fundamental force, is my understanding. And then it was shifted into a more open, loving, uh, inclusive type of teaching. Yeah, that, that sums it up quite well, Sheila. You know, as I said about the early Redemptorist missions, it was hellfire and brimstone. Yeah. It was eternal damnation. It was how easy you could commit a mortal sin and uh, the consequences of that, uh, so it was very much fear-based. And there was a big focus on making a good confession, yes, which, yeah. be, which became quite a, a terrifying ordeal for a lot of people. Mm. And then after the Vatican Council, very much a focus on the love of God and compassion and mercy and... Uh, the whole sense of uh, freedom, the freedom to be yourself, to be a full person. So it, it changed quite dramatically, really. Now, in theory, in practice, a lot of that never quite got through to the average Catholics, I think. Yeah. And that was part of the problem. Yes. So about four or so years after your own ordination, John Paul II became... John Paul came in in 79. Yeah, in 79, I was four years yeah. at the end of the time, yeah. And uh, I was at the uh, event in Galway. The famous... The one for the, the youths. Mm, people of Ireland. And, yeah, people of Ireland, I love you. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, now, I'm actually reading at the moment Derek Skelly's book on Irish Catholics, which is a great book. Uh, but he, and he contrasts, of course, as a lot of other people have done, that visit in 79 and the visit of Francis two years ago and the massive enthusiasm of 79 yeah. and how everybody thought John Paul was wonderful. <laughs> My memory of it, I was, as I say, I was at that mass and I was actually up there on the altar con celebrating as we did at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I remember being really uh, unhappy with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I remember clearly, just by chance, where I was sitting at the side of the altar was right up with the passageway that the celebrant would walk through as he returned from the altar. So he was going to walk right beside me. Okay. 
and he was shaking hands and people were putting out their hands and he was giving them blessings and everything. Mm. And I, I saw him coming. Now, the thing that struck me from the very first time I saw John Paul was his face. He had a hard face. And I didn't, and I've always tended a bit to, to maybe wrongly pass judgment on people by their face. There was a dogmatism about John Paul's face from the very beginning. Right. And as he was getting close to me, there was an old priest behind me who was trying to reach over me so that he'd be able to shake hands with John Paul. Yeah. I happily stepped aside and let him in because I did not want to have anything to do with him even then. And well, the sermon sorry. he preached at that mass, it's forgotten because of the... Uh, the soundbite. Yeah, and, and the enthusiasm of the young people who cheered and cheered and cheered. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, because, you know, most people, certainly my age, I mean, I was born in 79, but I have heard you speak in the past about if you really did pay attention to what he was saying, it was ultra conservative at the time. It was, is the content of his talk would have done justice to the old style of redemptorist moralism. Okay. It, it, it was totally that. You see, the young people, they were there in their thousands and they'd been up all night and it was mighty crack. Mm-hmm. And they weren't interested in what he was saying. They were out for, you know, they behaved as they would have had at a, at a rock concert. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. And then, of course, the, the young people of Ireland, I love you. Boy, did they get caught. Yeah. yeah, so that was it. Right. And, of course, the other the other symbol of that day, which is always <laughs> replayed on television, mm. is that while we were waiting for the Pope to come, the warm-up act was yeah. in case he might be clear. <laughs> yes. God Almighty, yes. isn't it? Uh, yeah. It seems like, centuries ago it does it does it, it, i don't mean to laugh yes. but it, it's it is interesting it, isn't it um yeah do you know uh, i i suppose sometimes it feels like and uh, not just with the topic of religion but with other issues as well if we're only fed one perspective all the time it's not until the curtain is pulled back or you you begin to kind of rub the eyes and look through different lens that perhaps something that you thought was one way presented one way is actually another um, if you dig a bit deeper, but you as a young man, I mean, at this stage, I'm guessing you're only early 30s. You were early 30s. I'm Yes, I suppose I'd have been 31 at that stage. Have you always and had a good sense of your own, listening to your own gut instinct? Because I would imagine, or maybe I'm not, maybe I'm wrong. Were you out on your own in your thinking at the time or were there others who thought like you? I don't were. Oh, were there were, you see, because a lot okay. of of my generation and those a little ahead of me would have been imbued with the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Right. And uh, uh, quite quickly, we began to have real concern about the church and the way it would go under John Paul. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, a a lot of priests and, of course, people were delighted with him because basically what he was doing was he was restoring the old church. And inevitably, whenever this change there'll always be a fair percentage of people who don't want change and who want to go back to the old ways. Uh, so they were delighted with John Paul, and I suppose right up until he died, he had uh, enormous following in the church. Yes. Mm, but that's a big, 
that's a big story. And that is really in a lot of ways the story of my life and of the life of my contemporaries. We lived through all of that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then when he was replaced by Pope Benedict, was it same old, same old? It was. Oh, God. (laughs) I remember... uh, um, I actually happened to be, um, the team of us were giving a mission on uh, on Eckel Island. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was Eckel Island. And it was the six o'clock evening news and we, we were gathered, uh, I think there were five churches in Eckel Island, so there were a good few of us there. And... Uh, we'd gathered for tea in the evening in the parish priest's house and the news came on. And the news was that a new man had been elected. And really our dread was that Ratzinger would get it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember when the announcement came out and the first word he used of the name was Joseph. Mm, okay. And I won't repeat what we said. Okay, right. We knew it was, we knew it was yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that, oh, that was a real kick in the teeth because we had hoped that maybe a change would come. Yeah. But it didn't. There you go. But it came later. It came later. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and we'll we'll get it. We'll get into yeah, we'll get sure, into all that. Sure. Um, sure. When did you start writing? I started writing around 1990. Um, I'd always wanted to write, but Hmm. (laughs) again, family. See, Peter, as I said to you earlier, Sheila, was a great storyteller. And the letters he used write to me when he'd be wherever he'd be, they were great. He he was witty and he, he had great use of language and he was very widely read and everything. And I always felt... God, and Peter never published anything. Mm. And I always felt, if Peter isn't publishing and he's a far better writer than me, what business have I? But there you go. Then in in 1990, I was appointed superior, uh, it's funny looking back on it, of the Redemptus Monastery in Limerick, which would be the oldest and at the time, the largest of the monasteries. There was a community of, I suppose, about 40 people there Mm. and some young men and a very interesting time. And I was superior of it for six years. Now, that was, again, an eye-opener in a lot of ways. Uh, I had no uh, academic training beyond basic bachelor's degree and my theology. Uh, I'd, I'd have done the BA in, in UCG at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I hadn't, I wasn't a trained theologian, in other words. And there was a magazine that's still going called The Four, published in Minute by, it uh, is an academic church magazine. Yeah. And practically all the people who wrote for it at the time were theologians of one type or another. But during those years, I'd say in the early 90s, I began to have a lot that I wanted to say. And the fact that I was superior of the monastery in Limerick gave me a forum. And I always made a point of preaching at the big events, say like Midnight Mass at Christmas, 
Easter time. Mm -hmm. And invariably, I used those occasions to take up issues that were going on at the moment. I remember causing quite a, a bit of controversy in Limerick uh, at one stage by, on one of those occasions, I can't remember, it was Christmas or Easter, it doesn't matter. Hmm. And I preached about the whole LGBT issue okay. and uh, the oppression of the gay people yeah. in church teaching. Um, that's a common one now, but at that stage... And what was the response? <laughs> both positive and negative, of course. Mm. Uh, they, uh, I discovered there was a whole gay community in Lummi that I didn't even know existed okay. because I'm not gay myself and I wouldn't have been in that world. Yeah. And But uh, I, I certainly heard from them after that. The editor of the Limerick Leader was very supportive, Brendan Halligan, I've rest of his dead sense. And, but then there were lots of other people who, who thought it was dreadful stuff to be saying. Uh, so I had got a reputation at that stage in the Limerick area and uh, uh, that as, as something of a liberal thinker and somebody who was speaking out. But also it takes, it's, it's, it's gutsy, it's incredibly um, courageous to speak up in the way you did, particularly in the time you did as well, when it wasn't the done thing. And I would imagine you were, you were pretty much out on your own in, in expressing your views publicly. There were a few, uh, yeah. I, I suppose I never even saw it like that, uh, but uh, anyway, I did. Um, so I, I said, I'm going to write an article. I said, I'll send it to them anyway. And they got, they published it. And of course, from once I got a taste for it, I was off. And uh, I began writing them regularly enough and writing for the local paper, and I got articles into the Sunday Independent at the time, God help us, mm. and that. And so that's where it began. And then, uh, Sheila, stop me if I'm going on too much. Um, then I finished as superior in Limerick in 96, the average spell you do in, in religious life is six years as a superior and then you go back into the ranks. And the other usual thing was that you take a break, uh, what's called the sabbatical, after doing a period as a superior. And mostly people took breaks uh, and went off, say, to Berkeley in California to study theology or something like that. And I said, no, I'll do something different. My mother had just died. The house at home was empty in a time. And I said... I go and I live in a time. Mm. And I set myself two objectives. I said, I'll write a book and I'll get my golf handicap down to single figures. Mm. So, mm. <laughs> I did both. Great, right. Um, and the book I wrote, uh, and it was the first book I wrote, uh, the title was The Death of Religious Life. Mm -hmm. Now it had a question mark in it, but... I learned that you should never put a question mark in the title because the question mark is quickly forgotten. Now, that was controversial mm. because what I was saying was that a religious life, meaning monasteries and convents of the sort that we have uh, experienced in Ireland over the last two to three hundred years, that that institution, that style of living was dying out. Yeah. And would be gone within 50 years. I can't remember exactly what I said. 
no, I wasn't making any friends for myself writing that book. Like if you think of it, Sheila, mm. the man whose job it was to promote the Redemptress and to get vocations. And then here was I coming out with this book and got quite a lot of publicity for it at the time and interviews and media and that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, I was I was undercutting in big time. Okay. So at that stage, I suppose that was my first real big step into being controversial. And yet mm. what you were saying was you were just speaking, you were just reflecting reality, to be honest. You weren't saying anything that wasn't actually already occurring. Yeah, precisely. And look, as it is now, um, 25 years later, yeah. the reality is a lot worse mm-hmm. than I even I conceived at the time. Yeah. It's a sad, a sad, sad situation now. That's another story. Mm. Yeah. Um, really, what I was saying was quite obvious, but few enough people were willing to listen to it at that time. Yeah. But it didn't put you off writing. You went on to write it many other books. It didn't put me off writing. The next, <clears throat> I went back there after taking my... <laughs> I did get my handicap down to nine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about that. I don't have a clue, uh, but I know that sounds oh, well, pretty impressive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. And yeah. um, I had a good year. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I went back then uh, to, and, and took up my work as a dentist preacher again. And in fact, this time... I was stationed in the monastery outside Atonai and Esker. So over the next 10 years or so, I would have done a great deal of work around the west of Ireland. Well, all over Ireland, but a lot around the west. And I would have been uh, very instrumental in starting the Novena in Galway Cathedral and stuff like that. So I'd have dealt with him in Casey in my time. And but in 1999, I published my second book, and it was called From the Inside, A Priest's View of the Catholic Church. Now, I, I again, I was definitely pushing the boat out, and that one got loads of publicity, including a, a late, late interview with Gay Bobby. Mm-hmm. At which I remember he, he now, oh, I was very nervous going on gay. Yeah. Uh, because a priest from Ennis had been on not long before me, and he was, he was speaking about the whole gay issue. Yeah. And uh, Gay Bottom threw a question at him. Are you a gay man yourself? And he was clearly stunned by the question. Mm-hmm. And he denied it. He said he wasn't. Whereas, in fact, he wasn't. He has very much come out on the whole issue. He's still alive. Yeah. Um, but he, he was really angry. And he said that he had been promised he would not be asked that question. Okay. Anyway, I went on and it was fine. And I wouldn't have... Uh, a word to say against gay at the interview. but And the researcher had gone through all the points that might be covered in the interview. And when I sat down beside gay, I could see he had the list in front of him with all those points. And they went down through them 
but we only got about halfway in the, in the, in the, the interview. Yeah. And then at the very end, he threw me very quick questions on some of the other ones, including, I remember, a question about women's alternation, mm. which I straight away just answered, yes, I would be in favour of the alternation of women. Now, that in 1999 was, was really pushing the boat out. But anyway, I did that. So that was that. A lot of publicity and that. And again, what was the response at the time in 99 when? Oh, Mm. uh, very mixed. Okay. Now, the official church did not respond to it. Uh, The Dutch superiors did not respond, Mm -hmm. you know, in any official way. Uh, an, an, an enormous amount of correspondence of all sorts and types. I happened to be away working in some, in some parish or other for the two or three weeks after the interview, but I had asked one of my colleagues in the monastery in, in Esker, I said, look, would you ever go through my post, uh, open them, and any that are unsigned just get rid of them and don't tell me what was in them. <laughs> yeah. He did that faithfully. Mm-hmm. So he just said there was a lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I, I never saw them. I, in fact, see, at the time, it was very common, Sheila, that you'd get anonymous abusive letters. I suppose it was the equivalent then of Twitter or yeah, trolling online social now. Media. Yes, yes. Now, um, <clears throat> now on the other hand, then I got a load of positive response. But it really put me into the limelight as uh, an outspoken progressive or an outspoken rebel, depending on your perspective. Mm, mm. So that was around the turn of the century. Yeah. Mm. So before we move ahead to 2012... Um, yeah. Just at that period of time when you were, you know, um, involved in the novenas and, you know, you were you were working closely alongside Bishop Eamon Casey. Were you were you content in your life then? Were you in a good place? That's a big question, Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was good life in a lot of ways. I just loved the public dimension, the public in the sense of the preaching and the yeah, meeting yeah, with yeah, people yeah. and all that sort of thing. I uh, Public speaking came naturally to me mm-hmm. and put me in front of a microphone and I was off. Yeah. So all that dimension of the work, I got a great kick out of it and I had lots and lots of energy for it. Like I can remember the first... Uh, year we did the Galway Novena and I was preaching on the last day I think it was six or seven sessions we had Mm. through the day and I can still remember the incredible enthusiasm I mean I was a bit of a rock star that day. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, 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 we all have that dimension in us. Oh, I mean, uh, that's the thing you... I've always noticed about priests uh, down to the years, that the really, I mean, I don't mean good as in inherently good as a human being, but, I mean, the good ones on the altar are the sh- are the true showmen, the ones that put on a good old yeah. mass. They, they, they give you a show. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you were one and, of them. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. no, I yeah. wasn't a singer type. I couldn't sing from notes or that, but yeah. I, I was able to preach, and mm. I was able, and I think it was my strength in both my preaching and then my. This sounds boastful, Sheila. No, it doesn't. Uh, um, I could use ordinary language. Mm. Uh, the the big problem with an awful lot of church stuff. Uh, I've become familiar with stuff coming out of the Vatican, unfortunately, in recent years. The language is so uh, appalling, so so remote from the language of the ordinary person. Yeah. I was able to use ordinary language and put uh, religious concepts into, into that type of language. So it was popular. And, uh, yeah, so I enjoyed all of that. But... Uh, the other side of it then was I was increasingly unhappy with the church and, and the direction in which it was going and quite disillusioned by a lot of it. Yeah. And the third factor then, more and more it was obvious that the life that I had joined, religious life, was, was dying. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't going to be any great fun uh, being part of something that was dying out. So it's sort of a country things going on in my life there. Yeah. So let's move forward now to 2010. Yes. 2010, uh, a conversation between myself and a couple of other priests about the state of the church and the state of the priesthood uh, led to us deciding to found an association that would be a voice for priests in Ireland. Uh, the two main people involved with me at the time were Brendan Hoban, priest in Mayo, be well known, and Sean McDonough, a Columbus. And we began then uh, this association of Catholic priests, and we set it up as an independent body. Now, there had been priest councils before of various types down through the years, but they were always founded under the auspices of the bishop of the bishops with the bishop as the ultimate chairperson of the body. But we said no. Because of the situation we were in and the church was in and priesthood was in, we wanted an independent body so we would be a voice for priests that was independent of the church authorities. So we began this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Association Catholic priests, which very quickly got very large numbers, and we became Brendan, John, and myself became the go-to people for the media when they wanted to, uh, uh, somebody to comment on church issues because we were willing to say it as we saw it. So that was a very controversial move at the time. Okay, and you were discussing you know, big issues within the teaching of the church. Absolutely. And the failure to, um, the the, the failure of the church to implement the teachings of the council in our uh, mission statement or whatever you call it. We said our main purpose was to promote the implementation of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, which we believed had been completely sidelined by John Paul and Benedict. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we were going very strong on all the council teachings and the failure to implement them, and especially in the Irish Church, where we considered, and indeed we would still consider, that there was a massive failure by the uh, authorities, the bishops in Ireland, to make any real effort to implement the teachings of the Vatican Council. And um, and then, of course, something happened that we didn't anticipate, uh, which changed our focus too and, and uh, took up an awful lot of our time. It was the time of clerical sex abuse, of course, yeah. and loads of priests were in trouble and there were allegations against an enormous amount of them, and bishops were terrified because the media were on their backs and a big gap had developed between priests and bishops. So priests didn't trust bishops and bishops didn't trust priests. So suddenly we found ourselves inundated with priests in trouble and looking for help. And that's a whole big story in itself. Mm. And that's still going on. So I'm not directly involved in it anymore. It's passed on now happily to a, a new generation of leaders in the Association of Catholic Priests. But that has become a big factor and a very, very complicated and difficult factor. But for about five years during that time, I was the main go-to person in the Association of Catholic Priests for priests and trouble. In this, in this in this conversation, we could we could talk about clerical sex abuse and all that happened during that time and, and the situation we are still in today. And I think that would take up another Good. hour or two or even more. We could probably do a whole series with you yourself, Tony, to be fair. So um, at this point, let's just yeah. try and zone in on. No, we do. We move on. The, the, the only reason I mentioned that is that in 2012, I got this phone call. Yeah from my superior general in uh, the headquarters of the Redemptorists in Rome, 
man called Michael Brain, a Canadian, mm. saying that I was in trouble with the Vatican and he wanted me to be in Rome the next day to talk to him. The next day, Now, right. this came out of the blue, mm-hmm. Sheila, because I knew well I was, I mean, I, I, I knew I was a controversial figure and that I was saying a lot of things that the church authorities wouldn't be pleased about. But I always worked on the assumption that because I wasn't an academic and I wasn't teaching in a seminary or in a university, that they wouldn't bother with me. Okay. Most of the people who had been silenced by the church under John Paul and Benedict were the theologians mm-hmm. uh, and the, the academics. Not priests? N- n- tended not to be priests, mm, yes. Okay. Uh, but here it was. Yeah. Now, I didn't quite go the next day, uh, but I went to, about a week later or so, and uh, it was a case of who would I bring with me. Uh, now, normally in a situation like that, a priest would bring a canon lawyer mm-hmm. with him. I didn't, I, I just had no interest in doing that because I said, if I bring a canon lawyer now, I'll be playing on the same pitch that they're playing on. Yeah. And I haven't a hope. In in the end, who I bought was my brother Frank. Mm. I said, yeah, well, he's the right man he, for the job. He, well, he 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 was experienced in the, in the political world. Yeah, and this was politics. Uh, so that was it. And when we got there, uh, he now Michael Grail and he had the councillor with him, and they were very friendly and all that sort of thing. Mm. And he had never met me uh, before, as far as I remember. Uh, but his thing, he wanted to ensure himself that I wasn't a heretic. A heretic. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's just crazy. It's, sti- uh, it's still, it's such an archaic term. Um, it is. And then he passed two pages across the table to me. One of them was a list of, I think, about five quotations from things I had written in articles and uh, which they regarded as heretical day, meaning uh, the Vatican body, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And the second page then contained the list of the punishments that were to be imposed on me. And uh, What were the punishments? Oh, it had to do with uh, wouldn't be allowed to minister, mm-hmm. was to keep silent, not to speak publicly, not to write publicly, uh, to go out and do a period of penitential exercise and uh, all that sort of stuff. You know, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was, what I discovered, uh, Sheila, was that before I even heard about this, mm. the Vatican had already dealt with it. Okay. He said to me, uh, Michael Brad said to me, he said, this is really serious, he said, because three congregations, the, the Vatican is made up of, it's, it's, it's a bureaucracy and it's made up of different congregations or the words they use as the castors to deal with different aspects of church life. He said three 
congregations in the Vatican met to discuss your case. So he said, they're taking it really seriously. Uh, and he also said, you, you won't be told who accused you, because you never are. But he said, I can tell you that it was somebody very high up in the Irish church, because otherwise it would not be taken too seriously. Okay. So the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Congregation for Religious and the Congregation for Clergy had all met, who had, had all passed judgment on me, they had all decided on the sentence before I even heard this was going on. So it was a fate complete that was being presented to me. And did you there ever find no... out, did you ever find out who the Irish member of the church was? No. Okay. I have my suspicions, but I never found out. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are lay people also. There are, there are certain groups of lay people in Ireland whose main aim is to uh, report everything that they regard as being unorthodox to the Vatican. So there's a big file there on me, but the big files too on other people. I'm sure Brendan Hoban has quite a fat file in the Vatican and lots of other people. That goes on. But okay. whoever the senior cleric was that reported me, I don't know. Uh, I, mm. as I say, I, I, I have a fair good idea, and a certain journalist has said has told me the name, and he said I have evidence to prove it. But I'd better not mention it, Sheila, because the man is dead now anyway, okay. and it doesn't okay. matter. Okay. So, like that was it. It was a fait accompli, mm. uh, and. It was the case then. I mean, I was in a state of shock. All I'm sorry about, Sheila, on that day yeah. was because the two pages that were pushed across to me were photocopies. Right. There was no heading and there was no signature and there was no official stamp or anything. There were two badly photocopied A4 pages. Okay. Like turning my life upside down. I should have pushed him back across the table and said, I'm not interested in this until such time as somebody puts their name to it officially. But I didn't have that. I was in too much of a state of shock. It was easy to be wise after the event. Of course, of course. So what did you do? <laughs> I went back home. Uh, they agreed that they would allow me to, this was the beginning of Lent, and I had a list of, work lined up for Lent. They agreed that they would allow me to do the work that I had assigned for Lent. Mm -hmm. And then by Easter that I was to take this period off, they wanted me to go to America and uh, to go to a certain retreat house in the West Coast of America and spend a couple of months there. The more I thought about that, the more I said, that's all part of the way they do it. Mm. Removed me from all my support structures and Isolate put you, yeah. me into a religious setting mm-hmm. where all I will hear is uh, lectures on obedience and doing what you're told and all that. <laughs> if yeah. I can say shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, no, I said I wouldn't go. So I stayed. Yeah. in Ireland mm. and I 
oh, sure, what do you do? I toss an awful lot about it. I discussed it with a lot of people. Uh, I got great support. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, uh, my friends in the association, Brendan and Sean, were marvellous to me. And then there was a case of statements. I had to give them a statement um, assuring them that I wasn't heretical. Mm. And I got a redemptorist colleague of mine, a moral theologian, Rafael Gallagher, to draft a statement, which he did. Now, I was unhappy about doing that because I said, even in doing this, I'm playing their game. And while Rayfield drafted a very good statement, I could see exactly what he was doing, which was he was writing a statement that could mean whatever the reader wanted it to mean, you know, in that sense. And, and that's very common in the theological world. And that was delivered back to the head of the CDF, the Congregation Doctrine of Faith, uh, an American called Leveda, uh, in June. And he said it was a very good statement. Mm. And my superior general in Rome phoned me and he said, great news. He said, I think we might be making our way out of trouble. So I was back in ministry then for the summer. But during that time, Leveda retired and was replaced by a German called Gerhard Müller. And in September, a further document arrived with extra things. You see, what they wanted was me to sign my acceptance of various issues. And two extra issues were brought into the main issue. And the first one was to do with the origin of priesthood, whether or not Jesus found it a priesthood. Now, mm. the general opinion is that Jesus certainly did not found priesthood, mm -hmm. but the official church teaching is that he did. But anyway, um, but Mueller, Mueller, the German, then introduced women's ordination, teaching on, homosexual, uh, on homosexuality, and generally uh, Catholic moral teaching. And I had to sign that I would accept all these things and that that uh, statement would be publicised. And there was no way I could do that, uh, Sheila, because like mm. for, for a long time, the famous old document way back in the 70s, well before your time on contraception, Humanae Vitae, mm. I, along with thousands of others, had publicly uh, distanced ourselves from it and said we didn't agree with it. And here they were wanting me now, at this hour of my life, to publicly state that I accepted it. And the same would apply to the teaching on homosexuality, which I had been often on record as disagreeing with. And uh, and again, I had been often on record as being in favour of equality for women and the ordination of women. So how could I possibly sign these documents saying that I accepted all this and have it published in my name? Yes. Uh, like, it, it, it was impossible. So... Uh, to make a long story short, as they say, by the end of that year, 2012, uh, I just had decided that there was nothing more that I could do with the Vatican. And uh, rather than be silent, which is what most priests did in situations like that, mm -hmm. I said, I won't. 
yeah. because I was really angry with the lack of due process, mm -hmm. with the fact that the whole thing had been decided before I even knew about it, and there was no court of appeal. I was never asked for my opinion on anything by the Vatican. I was really angry over all of that. Mm. So that towards the end of that year, I called a press conference in Dublin and yeah. I went public on it and uh, published all the documentation. And then early the following year, I wrote a book on it called uh, The Question of Conscience. Conscious. Were you afraid at that time? So it was... Um, there was a whole mixture of emotion. I mean, my life was summed upside down, Sheila. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a difficult, difficult year by any standards. Um, um, but you're glad it, you did it? I had no other choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. I couldn't have lived with myself if I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, now, since then, a lot of stuff has opened up in my life, which again would take another hour, uh, which which has been wonderful. And I also have had time to think, mm. and I've done a lot of that in the last ten years. And the product of that was the book that I just published before Christmas, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in in deference to my previous book from the inside I call this one from the outside yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rethinking church doctrine and, and, that, and I suppose in the last 10 years I have thought an awful lot about what the church teaches and uh, uh, beginning to look at a lot of it in a very different way so it has changed me enormously mm. so you're still a priest you're not allowed to... Um... Still a priest, not allowed to minister publicly. Mm -hmm. When I was 74 years ago, and at that stage I was living back <clears throat> at home in my home place yeah. in a time, and I celebrated a Mass for my 70th birthday in the local hall in the village. And that was a big event. What was that like? And it was great. I mean, I, I did that without asking permission of anybody. And uh, mm -hmm. it was great at the time. And then last November, when my brother Peter died, uh, who was also a redemptress, I did get permission to celebrate okay. his funeral mass. Oh, yeah. uh, so they were the two public events. Uh, I don't expect I will ever uh, be allowed back into ministry. I, I don't know that it matters that much to me at this stage. Do you I not mean, miss it? <laughs> Do you know, when, when I got on the altar for Peter's funeral mass, uh, it was in the monastery where I had been superior 20 years earlier. Mm. I wasn't two minutes on the altar when it felt like, you know, this is where I belong. Okay. And that surprised me. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose at some level I do miss it. Mm -hmm. And then, look, that's life. And I've had a good life in the last 10 years um, in, in all sorts of ways. And I've had great experiences. <sighs> Do you ever regret your decision to become a priest then or not? Oh, like, knowing what I know now, Sheila, there's no way I would become a priest. Mm -hmm. But look, how many people would say that? Uh, and 
aside from the, you know and the other side of that thing is like I I really did have a good life uh, and uh, the priesthood opened up for me so much that what what might I have become likely enough a teacher and got married and settled down the rest of Ireland or something who knows what and what that would have contained so there was so much that was good and interesting and exciting about my life uh, that uh, there's no no point in in regretting I have what I have and it could have been an awful lot worse Mm-hmm. And here I am. Yeah. Now I want to go back to some of the big hitters within the teachings of the church. And I'm also going to say that I was I was raised a Catholic. Going to mass was a huge part of my upbringing. And, you know, um, not alone my parents, but my, my grandparents were very religious and the rosary and everything played a huge part of my life. So like it was in it was it was in me. I've always had I've always had faith, but I I, I no longer identify with the Catholic Church and I haven't for many years, so much so that I have a little boy now and I I couldn't, I couldn't um, baptise him in all good conscience because I really struggled with this idea of sin, original sin and babies being born into that. Straight away, I, I struggled with the first sacrament. So I kind of, I knew that um, I needed to examine it and I did many, many years ago examine it. Um so I, I just want to talk to you about about those things, because um, I think there are a lot of the reasons why people do struggle to this day with the teachings of the church, because there's a lot about it that's great and good and that I do connect with. But there is so much that I, I struggle with. Um, so original sin, what is your own thinking on it? That's interesting now, because uh, the book that I just published from the outside deals with a lot of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it uh, I wouldn't. The understanding that we've traditionally had of religion, of original sin, does not make sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't mean anything uh, to, to a person who's reflecting on life and on faith. Um, we are not born into sin, we're born into love. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, what I'm saying, Sheila, is I don't believe in original sin. Uh, but then now a lot of people like me don't. Um, so I'm not saying anything particularly new in that. Now, on the other hand, then, there is the reality of evil, and uh, we know that there's loads of that, and struggling trying to explain that and trying to explain suffering and all of that. It's enormously complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose the, the main thing I'm saying in my book is that so much of life uh, is full of mystery. And when you go into the religious dimension of life, it's all about mystery. The mm-hmm. big mistake that the church made, and it made it quite early in the early centuries, is it tried to define everything. And that's where it came up with definitions like original sin and immaculate conception and uh, lots of other things like that. If uh, we could get rid of the, a lot of these definitions and return to the mystery mm-hmm. and just help people 
to link in to the wonderful mystery of life, uh, we'd be getting closer to what I think religious faith is all about. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense to you, Sheila. And certainly if the church had more of your perspective, I may still well be a Catholic to this day. All Mm. that stuff about babies and, uh, you know, limbo and dreadful stuff. But again, it was, you see, what what they actually did when they began to define things they tie themselves up in knots mm-hmm. because life is much too complex for simple black and white definitions. Um, yeah. And I suppose that's, uh, that's part of what I've learned, uh, not just about church and church teaching, but about my own life too and, uh, and dealing with other people that... Mm-hmm. Black and white definitions, black and white judgments, of that just do not work yeah. in, in in the complex mystery of life. But you mentioned that there, the immaculate conception is another is another one, and and I suppose it reflects. Well, you see, if you yeah. if you if you mm. don't accept uh, original sin straight away, the immaculate conception means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Or as you could say, it means everything. Mm-hmm. What, the, what the teaching on the Immaculate Conception said was that Mary was born without original sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, we're all born without original sin. Yeah. We're born into a sinful world and we're born into, into uh, we all contain within us the. the uh, possibility of, of failure and of evil and all of that whatever the origin of that is I don't know but we are not born carrying the sin of our first parents so mm-hmm. saying Mary was immaculately conceived means nothing um, now I know when I say something like that in public and I suppose I'm doing it now in your podcast and you've done it in the book uh, a lot of traditional Catholics would be appalled by that and said, say, is this the guy that spent all his life going around preaching novenas to our lady? <laughs> mm. And you see the contradiction in that. <laughs> but that's what I meant. But then it's the fact that in the Gospels, Mary had other children other than Jesus. Yes. Yes. There is a Mark's Gospel, I think, is quite clear, actually names them. Mm. Uh, names the, the, the males and says that there were, that there were also sisters there. So, yeah. the, so the daughters aren't aren't named. That that it the reflects a lot named. too. And and but, again, I mean, this concept of 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 the virgin birth. I I as I suppose again as a woman as a mother, I, I struggle with it immensely because again it goes back to and if we go down this rabbit hole, it's another one, but. Uh, the church's relationship with uh, women and with sex and how, you know, we just don't talk about it. And in fact, not just that we don't talk about it, but actually sex at its core is is sinful or bad or deviant, creating an issue around something that is normal and natural and necessary Mm -hmm. for the continuation of our species. Um, 
it again is 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 such a struggle for for someone like me. And I I know there's plenty of people like there, but again, you were very you have been very vocal and still to this day about the role of women within the church because really women don't have a role in the church and how you would like to see that change. Yeah. So not, not only would I like to see it, Sheila, but it, it is absolutely fundamental to the future of the church. Will it ever if happen? The church, if it doesn't, the church won't survive mm-hmm. because it, it just, it, it will have no credibility. Like already it has no credibility among the younger generation of women and rightly so, um, mm. so, but it will happen. Um, you see, a lot of the stuff you mentioned there, Sheila, and, and I'm totally in agreement with you about the church teaching on sex and, and uh, all of that. An awful lot of that came in in later centuries. Th- th- that wasn't gospel stuff at all. That wasn't yeah. uh, from Jesus. Yes. It was more from... Quite, uh, from um, what do you call them, and uh, Augustine, mm-hmm. and it was from Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophers had a major influence on the early church uh, writers in the first few centuries. So a lot of that stuff came from there, and the the misogyny, the anti-woman thing, and the anti-sex were mm-hmm. very much, and they weren't part of the Gospels. I know a lot of Jesus' relationship with women has been uh, pushed out of the Gospels uh, because, again, the Gospels as we have now were only put together in the, they were only finalized in the third century and they came from a whole range of scraps and bits of writing here and there uh, that were preserved. And it was the people in the third century that decided what we put in and what we leave out. And there are definite indications, for instance, that Mary Magdalene had a very significant part to play in the life of Jesus and that that was pushed out in the official version that has come down to us. Um, So the the anti-woman thing and the obsession about the sinfulness of sex are not gospel ideas, they're later accretions. And, and that's part of what the church will eventually have to do is rid itself of an awful lot of that stuff. But boy, that won't happen easily. I'll be long dead. <laughs> mm. So these, these decisions that are made by the po- those the powers that be within the Vatican, it strikes me that they're born out of absolute terror, complete fear of the truth being unveiled someday that they just they're so I suppose it is the the brainwashing and conditioned to think a certain way that we cannot allow because once we let a little light in it could just the floodgates will open that's right that is very true Hmm. the other aspect of life of people say in the Vatican and the church generally and it's Francis to be fair to him, is constantly railing against this. He uses the word clericalism. It's this enclosed circle of thinking uh, that is prevalent in the church, very much so in the Vatican. They live such an enclosed world among themselves and outside influences, and, and they live such a strange life. 
Mm-hmm. Their the lives have very little relation to the, the life of the ordinary person. Uh, and that's part of why their language is so remote from ordinary people. And that same mentality is present and was very much present in the old days and is still present to a fair degree among priests. Uh, and that's, you know, what Francis is talking about when he's talking about clericalism. This enclosed world, its own language, its own way of thinking, and its own sense of its own importance and of its own truth. And uh, what Francis is trying to do is to, with this movement, also what he calls synodality, is to open the church up to the voices of the ordinary people, the lay people, as we call them. Uh, and it's a big, big project. And he, but he, he's making a start at it. And I think he's on the right path. And if that works, and a lot will depend on who succeeds him, mm. if that did manage to begin to work, it would bring about radical change, I believe. But I'd be long dead. Maybe <laughs> mm, well. just as well. Yeah. But you've made, and look, please God, there's many, many years left in you. You're only 74. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you have Not made never. this lifetime count. You have, and I would imagine there are plenty of people before and after you who, who like me, admire you greatly for what you have done. And because you're not just speaking up for yourself and your own personal views, but you're speaking up for many people who, who um, I suppose, struggle with being as brave as you to do the same and share your views, but don't feel that they have the confidence to, to step up as you have done um, your entire, your entire life. Um, so Pope Francis is a change, but I mean, the opposition is there within within the organisation and it obviously is so incredibly complicated and I know very little about it, but are the Vatican and the Pope one of the same or are they, you know, are they, are they, are they different separate entities? In the, in the present uh, situation, they're increasingly separate entities okay. because you see, again, it's the, uh, the residue of John Paul and Benedict, because what they did was to fill all the posts in the Vatican with people who thought like them. So, and then along comes Francis, and partly because he came from South America and had no personal experience of living in the Vatican or anything, he came with different ideas and different approaches. Mm. And the crowd in the Vatican from the very beginning did not like him and by and large have done everything they can to stymie him. But what he is doing is that he is increasingly doing the same as John Paul and Benedict did, except that he is filling the posts with people who think uh, like him, in mm-hmm. other words, who are more open to change yeah. and to new ways of doing things. So that's the big battle that's going on in the Vatican at the moment. And it is one hell of a battle from what I read about it. And uh, personally, I'd be saying, Francis 84, if he gets four more good years, mm. the, the other thing he's doing too is he's appointing new cardinals uh, all around the world. And the cardinals will elect the next pope. So if there are enough 
Francis Cardinals. <laughs> this is pure politics, as you can see, yeah, Sheila. Yeah. If there are enough Francis-style Cardinals at the next conclave, uh, then maybe we'll get somebody who will follow on uh, along the policies that Francis is uh, has been trying to do. And I think if he gets, please God, about four more years of health, mm -hmm. he will have largely achieved that purpose. And then if we could get somebody in who was a bit younger and more energetic, but who taught in the same way, then we could see a real change in the church. But uh, on the other hand, mm. it could go the other way. Yeah. And we could get somebody who would bring us back to John Paul's dogmatic substances, at which stage I would be very pessimistic about the future of the church. Mm -hmm. mm. It's, uh, it's very, so much very this, sad. It's very sad. So much of it is very like politics. Yeah, Sheila. it is. It is. And so much of it is politics. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, it's sad. Um, and frustrating, I would imagine. Yeah, it can be that. And at the same time, you see, as I said earlier on in the interview, in my early years, there was so much excitement mm -hmm. because uh, all these new ideas and all of that, and that was great. And then we had a long period of, of wilderness uh, when everything was being closed in. And uh, for long as Francis, there are now seven years, 2013, mm -hmm. eight years this year, uh, the last thing I and people who thought like me would have expected was that somebody like him would come in at this stage and breathe new life and new energy into the church. So it's been a real gift. Now, I know lots of people complain about him and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do a lot of what we'd wish he'd do, but I think he's doing an enormous amount. And it's been good to have lived for Francis. Do you think, I think he's a genuinely good man? That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. It's the humanity. Yeah. That sometimes is, yeah. is not yeah. reflected. It's the enough. most important thing in the end. Yeah, it is, of course. Because all the all the theology in the world isn't what to cost if if a person hasn't had with a decent humanity in them. Yeah. That is so true. If Francis had been Pope in 2012, do you think he would have been summoned to the Vatican? Um, I'd say very unlikely. Okay. Because yeah. when he came in, he immediately set about uh, taking the power away from this congregation for the doctrine of the faith. And within a year or two, he had got rid of um, Mueller, the head of it. Mm. Now they're still, they're still there and they still come out with incredibly stupid statements like they did two weeks ago about the gay, gay relationships, but they don't have anything like the power that they had then. And people and priests are, are speaking out and saying things that I'm saying that I was saying and they're saying them now without impunity and nobody is like one of the current leaders of the Association of Catholic Priests Tim Hazelwood, priest from Cork on uh, Morning Island the other day stated 
clearly that he would bless gay relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vatican document had said that the church could not bless gay relationships and God wouldn't bless gay relationships. Tim came out and said the exact opposite. And um, no repercussions. And there won't be any repercussions. So it has changed enormously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if, if, if Francis had been there, uh, I wouldn't have. And I think if the redemptress superiors, and I'm referring particularly to the headquarters in Rome, had any courage, which I don't think they have, okay. they could easily lift the sanctions on me now. In other words, defy the CDF, the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith, and say we are restoring Tony Flammery to ministry, and they could depend that Francis would back them on it, but they haven't the courage to do it. Or maybe they don't want to. I don't know. You're a remarkable man. Um, I could honestly talk to you for another few hours and it still wouldn't be long enough. At this phase in your life, after all you've been through, after all you've experienced, reflecting on the life you've had so far, I mean, what do you believe now as as your true religious belief or faith? What What is that? What does it look like? In, in a strange way... Um I believe very differently to to what I was brought up to believe. Mm. But I do have a great sense of the presence of mystery in the world and in my own life, of some type of thing, uh, 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 of presence that is far greater than anything we have in this world. But that isn't distant from us, you know, this notion of a God being up in the heavens, um, mm. standing in judgment. Uh, you know, it, uh, whatever type of divine mystery is there is right at the heart of life. Mm. And uh, like, as I'm sitting here now, I'm looking out at the daffodils and the springtime and, you know, the wonder of, of 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 all of that around us, and the wonder of ourselves as human beings. Um, so I'd be very more and more conscious of all of that. And for me, at this stage, that this divine mystery that is present within us and around us is ultimately, uh, it's, it's ultimately love, yeah. and. Wherever, and I'm quoting John's Gospel here, wherever there is love, Hmm. the divine presence is very much present. So I suppose in a way, the religion I grew up with had so much fear, as we talked about earlier on. I don't have any of that fear anymore, at least I I don't think I have. We we do tend to carry emotional things from from our childhood into our life. But I'd have a, a great sense that there is a, an eternal mystery, that our destiny is to be part of that, and that it will be an experience of ultimate love. That's, and that's good. Yeah, it is good. 
Tony, I admire you massively for refusing to be silenced. It shows such great integrity you know in your part. The, the, the people not see at the time, uh, mm. Sheila, <laughs> Charlie Brown was in, in his gone since. Um, somebody challenged him in public about me being silenced. <laughs> I never met him. He must yeah. have had a sense of humor. He said, silenced, he said. Every time I turn on the radio, he's honored. Look, Sheila, it's lovely talking to you. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Your <laughs> book, your book is From the Outside, Rethinking from Church the outside, Doctrine. Rethinking Church Doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's in all the bookshops if they were open. But yeah. Kinney's now, for instance, would have loads of it. Yeah. Well, look, I, I really hope that one day change change will happen um, and that something better and more progressive will emerge. I suppose time will tell. Um, but, Tony, you know, keep being you, keep being your own man. And uh, I think you're helping an awful lot of people. I've certainly taken so much from our conversation and I just wish there were many more like you had the bravery to speak up. I think it would do so much good for everyone. Um, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Sheila. My privilege. Thank you. This episode of Ready to Be Real Conversations was brought to you in partnership with Irish kombucha brand Synergy, who offer a delicious range of 100% natural ingredients, organic and low in calorie sparkling drink varieties containing all the amazing benefits of kombucha and available in supermarkets nationwide. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.